Greetings in the name of the Lord. Welcome. Grace be with you. Peace. Shalom. Whatever greeting works. I am Cullen Cressman, and this is my attempt at a podcast. Okay, so we are moving forward in our study of Genesis, and I'm excited about this. It's it's, uh, a portion of scripture that I have wrestled with for many years, and and I would encourage others to, and I'm by no means done wrestling with it. I think that that is a intention to have this story at the beginning of scripture. I I don't think that it would uh, serve well in another location. And we went briefly over the the first creation story, and the reason I call it that is because I think that it's intentional that the the song of creation is first. And I don't think that they are competing stories, but I also don't think that the stories are meant to be uh, uh, something that, that dictates uh, certain views of creation. And the reason I say that is because they, they work in opposite directions. So to take a a strict literalist view of the text, uh, they have a contradiction right here just between chapter 1 and 2, and that is that which was created first, was it the world and then humans, or was it humans and then all of the things within the earth? And there's different arguments for how people try to marry those. I think it's simplest just to say that you have the song of creation a celebration that's that's more of a, a grand picture, a macro view of creation to set up the the splendor and the the sovereignty of God. And then you have a more intimate story, not different in the sense of, of ultimate authority that God created the world, but different in that it gives us the needed perspective of how humans fit within creation and relation to God. And so I want to go through this, uh, and and I'm going to be going all the way to the end of chapter three. So really covering chapter two to end three, and it's the story of Adam and Eve, but I want to, just as an exercise here at the beginning, I want you to, to try your best, read through the story, take note of, of all of the different items in the story. That's something very important when you're reading through biblical stories and narratives. All of the different items, the different characters, what do they do, what do they say, all these different things. And as we go through this story, I want you to, to try to uh, let go of some, some presuppositions. That's very hard, but don't think about ideas you've had in the past or maybe ideas that you've heard before, but always try your best. I know it's impossible, but try your best to approach a story with fresh eyes and, and think new and and let's experience the Bible as intended, one chapter at a time. So when we go into this second chapter, don't think about what you may or may not know about later texts, later things in Scripture. But what does this story cause us to wrestle with? So one of the things that I think is very interesting, and sorry, I, I would say do that exercise, read through the story, and then come back and, and join me because I'm not going to go through it. Uh, reading it, I'm I'm going to start pointing out things about this narrative as a whole that I think are necessary for us to to wrestle with, and that is 
a a flow, a a pattern that's going on here in this story is that God makes man, and when he makes man, he then starts making things for man. And as he makes things for man, he builds free will within that that situation. And that's one of the things that that I remember when it hit me, it, it just I couldn't believe that I'd never seen it before. It threw me off. I was always thinking about, you know, oh well God made free will and he's so evil. You know, how how uh, uh, unfair of him to just give us a choice. You know, you either serve me, you know, or not. And and that is a very flattened version of free will. But it says if you if you look, it says that uh and out of the ground, this is verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now see, when I was a kid growing up, I always just thought of the one tree. That's all you ever see in in pictures and stuff, you know, Bible Bible art and different stuff like that is you you always hear about the fall. You always see Eve with the serpent and the apple and the the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have that as the picture of here's free will. You have a choice to serve God or you have the choice to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that that puts it immediately in a competing perspective. And that's what I want to get at in a minute with the the serpent. But what's so interesting about this idea, it, it flattens free will when there actually is a beneficial option that's provided, and that is the tree of life was given. They were given two trees, but only one of them had a, a command about it. Only one of them was off limits to them. And actually, if you're looking at this from a narrative point of view, it creates a, a inclusio, a meaning that it has its bookends of the story, that the tree of life is actually the first tree mentioned, and it's the last tree mentioned. If you go to the very end of the narrative, at the end of chapter 3, the tree of life is the concern of God at the end of the narrative. It's the first tree and the last tree. That'll preach. Um, but anyways, you have the these trees created, but you have so many things made for the humans. You have that that the Lord, one, you already have the, the man. This is all, when I, I'm talking specifically, this is all before the temptation happens. You have that God is working for the benefit of Adam. That you have this, this, this story of, of God making man, forming him out of the dust of the ground, and then serving him. God is serving this human. He's he's making things for him that will benefit him. He's bringing things and he's trying to to help him find a a a companion. All of these things he is his his partner so to speak. He's excited about equipping him, taking care of him. And and the point I want to make is every step all along the way as long as Adam has been alive God has taken care of him. God has provided for him. 
when he needed something, God was there. That's what's very important that I think that that we overlook in life. If I'm reflecting on this narrative, that we overlook in life is that God has taken care of us. It's a past tense thing. And if we don't acknowledge that he has, then we are going to be weaker when temptation comes. What you have here is that Adam, every time he needed something, the Lord took care of him all the way to the point of him giving Eve, that, that he created him a companion, a helpmeet, that, that is, is going to, to help him accomplish his tasks here in the world. And so this, this is such a, a, a wonderful picture. But I, I think it's so interesting here you have this in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is after Eve has been created. Leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. And I think that's very important is, is this idea of shame, that they were naked, they were vulnerable, they were exposed, but they were not ashamed. Then you have the serpent entering into the story. And again, something very interesting happens with the the narrative, these narrative elements I mentioned earlier of paying attention to the characters and what they say. And so if you look at the 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 words of of the Lord in the the command about the tree, it's it's very uh, uh, to the point. And Eve, uh, the the woman says it to the the serpent the serpent says you know you're not supposed to eat of this tree and the woman says you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die and the lord had told adam that you're going to die that day that you're going to die in the day that you eat of it but the serpent, so this is what's interesting, is the Lord makes a statement, but then the serpent makes a statement. The serpent makes a statement and says that you will not surely die. And that is so odd. Because we know the end of the story, and we know that they don't die. Now this is where it, it takes a lot of work. And this is what I try to do a lot of times reflecting on these narratives and thinking, Lord, what, what am I supposed to be really diving down into these these narratives, how they play out? is It's very hard to get all of my guesses out of my head. But just reading the story, not any kind of philosophical or theological uh, leaps to, to fill in the gaps of the story. What's the result of Adam and Eve's action. Did they die or not? Now some people, this is why I say you got to dismiss these these ideas just so we can wrestle with the story. You can pick up some ideas again later if you want, but to wrestle with the story. Not, you know, not these ideas of well they died a spiritual death. Well, what is what is a spiritual death? They're still walking and talking 
with God. The very next chapter, chapter 4, God's talking with Cain and Abel. So what is a spiritual death? Is it that they're out of the garden? Is it that they're doomed to die? I'll get more on that on, on death and a little bit with the tree of life. But, but it's just interesting to me that the Lord told Adam that in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And the serpent said, no, you won't. And what, what I get from the story, what I see here is that the tempter, the, the serpent here, who is more cunning than any other creature, is, is able to see um, that the Lord is, is actually going to do something different. The Lord actually pivots, calls an audible, and, and I find this so fascinating. And, and I'll give you terms for it uh, down the line. But I think it's interesting that what happens after they disobey God, they don't die. But actually, everything that the serpent says almost uh, comes true. He says that, you're, I, that you won't surely die, but um, you will be, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's what happened is they had that knowledge. And as I was younger, I always thought of the story as like a doomsday type of event. Like, oh man, come on, Adam and Eve. You know, why couldn't you hold it together? But then I also had this picture of God that he is this, this wrathful God of, you know, ready to, to bring down the hammer. But that's why I'm emphasizing so much that they didn't die. As soon as they took a bite out of the, the apple, the result of it was that their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. Shame entered into their life because they knew good and evil. So something did happen to them. But it wasn't the, the negative that was promised. And what I realized even more about the character of God in this story is that as Adam and Eve are hiding from God, he's looking for them in the garden and he starts to talk to them. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said the serpent, or sorry, I, I a little bit before that, um, I heard the sound of you in the garden, this is verse 10, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And this is the word of word from God that I that I still just wrestle with in a wonderful way. I wrestle with this. Verse 11, God said, "Who told you that you were naked? Who told you?" And that indicates that God saw in that moment that Adam knew something he wasn't supposed to know. Now, again, I want you to jump back to an earlier part of the narrative that I discussed briefly, is that God had been giving Adam everything he needed at the times he needed. He had been providing for him. 
He has all the things that he needs. There is no indication in the story that the Lord is going to withhold from him. There's no indication in the story that he wasn't going to progressively teach him things. And so it could have been that at some point the Lord was intending to teach him about nakedness. And the assumption is that he would teach him about the nakedness without shame. And I get this picture in my mind. I think of God as a father in the way that you can think of being a parent. And if your child learns something or is exposed to something that they weren't supposed to know at a certain age, something that they weren't emotionally, uh, psychologically ready to, to handle, to, to work with. And the Lord says, who told you these things? I have not taught you that yet. I have not dealt with that yet. Who undercut, who stepped in and took this lesson from me, so to speak, that the Lord is inquiring of them, who did this? It's, it's almost a cry of the Lord saying, who corrupted my image? Who did this to mine? Another important thing I, th- I see of w- what I was reading earlier of, of uh, the Lord confronting them and the, uh, the man said, this is verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And I think this is so interesting. This whole story, I think, is interesting for reflecting on humans as, as we are. It's this such such perfect picture of human nature that Adam blames God. He says, the woman that you gave me. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And so neither one of the humans are, are, are owning or taking responsibility for this at all. And I think that is so typical of, of humans that they're either trying to blame God or the devil, not saying that they had any part of it at all. And I think that's where most responsibility lies in this story, that they didn't take account of all that God had done for them. And so they were, they were swayed in the midst, the, the conversation of temptation. They were distracted. The temptation was too much for them because they weren't taking account. They weren't being responsible and taking account of their life of how good God had been to them. And so you have this this punishment that the Lord gives. But it's still so interesting when you read this, not from the point of view of an angry, wrathful God, but of a God who believes in consequences, that there are consequences for actions. But you notice that those consequences are not what was promised to them. There is no death that is given to them. There is nothing that says that they are going to, to, that he's going to fulfill what he told Adam earlier in the story. What is happening here? That's, that's what I'm wanting to know is what is, what is going to be happening with that moment? And then to keep going further, it actually gives you this picture in verse, chapter three, verse 22 says, then the Lord God said, behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's my conclusion on this. This is what I think is is such a wonderful and and incredible picture of of all of scripture of what happens here at the beginning of of God's relationship with humans. He gives a command and he has this relationship with humans and the tempter is is able to actually call God's bluff. And I understand that strong language and and I'm I'm trying, like I said, I'm trying to wrestle with this. This is ongoing for me. But the term I would give is that this is the first picture we see of how we truly understand what mercy is. That we were told something was going to come to pass. A human was given a, a command and they did not receive it. That the tempter seem to understand the mercy of God more than the humans did. That the tempter understood the Lord won't go through with it because of mercy. And in fact, if you jump to the very end of the Bible, you have the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. And it makes me wonder, If in that moment when the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? That the lamb began to unfold in that moment. The atonement had become necessary. And that was what's going to need to happen in order for his creation to be with him in eternity uncorrupted unblemished because what you see here is that the Lord never gave a prohibition against the tree of life and so with that there's two things that I think is that I don't think that humans were eternal at that time I don't think they lost their eternality because the Lord locks up the tree so that they would not take from the tree of life so it seems to me that they had not had that but it also means they could have had that it was accessible to them and so I think that they could not, uh, I think that they they now were, were doomed to die eventually, that they didn't have access to that tree anymore. But I also think that that is in and of itself a sign of incredible mercy that the Lord sees our brokenness of the things that we're not taking responsibility for, but we did to ourselves. And he makes a way for it all to work out. He says, lock up the tree of life, and then one day we'll bring it back out when the lamb is slain, so that people can live. Now, I've taken more time on just this small passage than what I intend to on the rest of the book of Genesis, just because it's it's massive. But the reason I took the time here to, to give these thoughts, to contemplate these things as you're reading the narrative, is because... I think it's important, Genesis is the, the, the start of our covenant conversation with God. And so I think it's important that we think through, contemplate how this story starts. It's going to speed up, it gets quick, and it's moving towards 
a formalized covenant, a promise between God and Abraham and his descendants. And that, and we will work through that. But what we see from the very beginning is that God is very merciful. And his intention is to provide and to take care of and to be with his creation. That he's not distant, but that he he intimately cares and worries and is concerned about and provides for, even through consequence, he provides for humans. And I think that's such a wonderful thing to have in the bank, to understand about ourselves as we go through life, that we actually can count on the mercy of God because it's from the very beginning of Scripture. It's stated. We can see right there that that He is willing to to give us mercy in the face of his command. He's willing to have mercy on us and make a way for us. And I think that's an important thing to understand. It's not simply, uh, this is not simply a, a text. This is not simply a narrative for us to, to dissect on how humans were made. It's that there's a relationship here that we need to understand between humans and God. So if you have any questions, any additional things, or maybe you want to challenge some of the things I've proposed here, send me a message. I'd love to talk with you on social media. We'll be covering the next chunk of Genesis in following episodes. 